Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Good morning. Glad you're here. I rejoiced when they said to me, we're going to the house of the Lord. Here our feet are standing in the Jerusalem of God, the church. What a privilege and joy to be here on this day. Nice hair. Is that Halloween leftover? No, it's just cool. I'll pay for that later. Well, we're continuing our, ser- our series on the book of Genesis this morning with a return to the first several verses of chapter 2. This is the second in a pair of sermons on these verses. And uh, the last time we were here was a few weeks ago. The reason we're coming back to it and spending so much time on it and going through these verses carefully is because this opens up for us the beginning of what Scripture in general deals with a lot and is a complex doctrine. But that's really not, it's not that complex. The truth is, we're so sophisticated in not receiving it. (laughs) We so badly don't want it to be a requirement that God puts on us, which is foolish, as I hope we'll see today, but we don't like this doctrine of the Sabbath. And that's what these verses uh, begin introduce us to, right here at the beginning of Genesis. And the rest of Scripture further explains it, opens it up for us, and applies it to our lives. And so we're not going to spend a lot of time this morning on Genesis 2, though we will read it at the beginning, because last week we did. And in fact, we won't spend a lot of time in the Old Testament, because that's where we spent most of our time last week. Or not last week, a month ago now. Let's read Genesis 2, 1 to 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their hosts... By the seventh day, God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which he had created and made. This is the word of the Lord. Well, what did we see from these verses last time? Well, we saw that God continued on day seven, Even in his rest, and just because of it, his work of his pattern, his creational pattern of creating and dividing. That's what he's done on every preceding day, and he continues it even in his rest here on day seven. What did he create on day seven? The weak. Duh. I mean, it's obvious, but it's so obvious we don't notice it. It's right on in front of our face. He creates a weak. What's the significance of God creating a weak? Well, the significance, we said, was this. That he wanted to give us, in the, 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 the segments of our, of our life, the divisions of our life and the divisions of time, 
a pattern to conform ourselves to that came only from him and had nothing to do with any phenomena of nature. Remember that? God wanted to establish that we belong to him as his image bearers and that we are to conform our, our, the patterns of our life after him and not after the moon or the seasons or anything else. Not in the most basic sense, in, in the week, seven-day week, invented by God, not by man. And in, so that's what he created. What did he divide? Well, he divided that seventh day from the other six. And what was his purpose in doing that? Well, his purpose in doing that was to establish in creation, in that pattern, that segment of time, a regular day to set aside our usual work, let's say Adam's usual work, so that he could give himself undistractedly to communion with God, so that he could contemplate with God God's own works, and he could learn about them from God. God could reveal things and teach things to him. That's what this day was for. It was a day for worship. What is worship? It's not singing. That's what we think worship is. The worship was great at that church means what? The singing was great, or the the band was great. But that's a very small view of worship. Worship is really communion with God, fellowship with God. That's what worship is. When we give ourselves actively to that fellowship and communion, which God has made available to us, we are worshiping. We're worshiping him now. That's what we're doing here. We're giving ourselves actively to fellowship with God. God is teaching us from his word. Just as he would have taught Adam at least every Sabbath because that day was spent to be spent in fellowship with him. So that's what we saw from Genesis and then we moved forward into the Old Testament after the fall into sin and we saw that this Sabbath which is more implicit here in Genesis than explicit, is made explicit in the giving of the law at Sinai. And, so, and, and the, re, the reason given for this six days you shall work and the seventh you shall not do any work, it is a Sabbath of complete rest unto God. The reason given was God's own pattern in creation. So Genesis, there's this thing in in interpreting Scripture called the analogy of faith. The analogy of faith. And it really just means that Scripture interprets Scripture. And so when Moses gives, or God gives the law to his people, he explains himself in Genesis. And we, we know in our ignorance now because of the fall, what Adam would have known without hardly being instructed by God, Right? as he saw God doing what God does. So God has to make explicit for fallen, sinful, rebellious creatures what was only implicit before. And we discussed also the example of Jesus, who is sometimes appealed to as the consummate Sabbath breaker. He went around breaking the Sabbath everywhere, making all the Pharisees mad, and that this is supposed to indicate for us 
that there is a relaxing, at least, of the Sabbath command in our lives, as it applies to us, in the age of the gospel, the age of Christ. Or that it just means it's completely done away with and it has no application for us. Some people say that. And they appeal to the example of Jesus. Well, Jesus did go around breaking the Sabbath everywhere. But it was not God's Sabbath that he was breaking. It was this, the, the man-made institution of the Sabbath that the Pharisees had constructed around God's law, which had all these namby-pamby rules about how, far, how many steps you could take away from your house on, the, on that day. An unbelievable list of petty rules. And Jesus, as he does with all the rest of God's law, is restoring this law to its original purity and meaning. He's giving it back to the people as God intended it. It was not a day for being tight, for being rigid. It was a day of fellowship with him, a day of joy, a day of feasting. A day of worshiping, of assembling together with God's people. We saw this from Leviticus 23 when the Sabbath is, is instituted in Leviticus where the ceremonial law is given. And Leviticus says, or God says to Moses, these are my sacred assemblies. These are my holy convocations that I institute for you. Six days you shall work and do all your work. You shall labor and then on the seventh you shall rest. And this shall be a holy convocation in your dwellings, back home, away from the temple. And so on a weekly basis, God's people were to meet in their camps to to renew themselves in obedience to God, in fellowship with him, to hear his word and his law taught to them so that they could be renewed in their faith. That was the Sabbath institution as I see it in the Old Testament. It was a day for worship. And Jesus was giving that privilege, that joy, that gift back to the people as God had intended it. And we said all of these things as we're coming into the New Testament to see what God says in, in the New Testament under the rule of the gospel, what we are to do today. So we we said all of this, we built this case so that as we came into the New Testament, we would have this strong presumption that the fourth commandment has something to do with us. That it can't just easily be pulled out of the Ten Commandments, which are, as we said, clearly a set, a very uniquely given set, and they have their integrity together. And you can't just go around pulling one out and saying it doesn't apply without harming or calling into question all the rest. It's also, we said, a creation ordinance like marriage and work and is as abiding as a principle of life, as a principle of creation, as those institutions are. So this was to build a strong presumption for us today that this command, which we don't like, we don't like anybody telling us Oh, here's another way that I break God's law. We especially don't like being reminded of this one. It feels 
like a burden to us. We have a very negative attitude about it. But we wanted to build this case as we come in that there is a, a presumption of its lasting application. And then I ended it with a cliffhanger. You remember the cliffhanger? The trump card that I acknowledged that you all had in your back pocket and should be playing right now if you're following along with the argument. The trump card was, that's all wonderful, Pastor. Wonderful exposition of the Old Testament. Wonderful. Just absolutely true. No objections. Except this. It says, God says he, he blessed and sanctified the seventh day. And so, as long, unless you're going to say that we are obligated to change our practice and, 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 and start worshiping and assembling and keeping the Sabbath on Saturday, then what you're saying to me has just, you know, it's just wonderful, but it has no effect on me, no application. The rubber does not meet my road. That's your trump card. And so I said that this time I would try to answer that objection that, and show that there is a change of the day that comes in in the time of the gospel that, that the day changes from Saturday to Sunday without violating or substantially, fundamentally changing that part of God's law. That the, the law stays fundamentally secure, the same, abiding, and yet it, it bears up under this change. That's the burden of today. As we go through some of these points, I'll just point you to, initially, the statement of Jesus in Matthew 12, where he says that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. That's what he reminded the Pharisees, the Son of Man, I myself, says Jesus, am Lord of the Sabbath. This is a bold claim of our Lord. He was, here was a man, a, a teacher in Israel, who was claiming to be the, the giver of God's law, which means he was claiming to be God himself. But being Lord of the Sabbath, as we believe him to be, he is able to change any part of his law he wants to change. And he does. But as I said, without violating its, fun, its essential nature. Let's look first of all at the New Testament evidence that the seventh day Sabbath, the Saturday Sabbath of the Jews, is done away with in Christ and is irrelevant us. There's several passages that open this up. The most explicit one is Colossians chapter 2. And it, if we can understand it, we'll, we'll understand the other passages well enough. Colossians chapter 2. Look at this. Paul, writing to the Gentiles in Colossae, says, Therefore, because he's gone on about Jesus Christ and all that Jesus Christ has accomplished in his, in his atonement. He says, therefore, because of this, because Jesus has done what he's done, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon 
or a Sabbath day. So one of Paul's great missions in life as the apostle to the Gentiles was to protect faith in Jesus from any extra burden hanging on from the Old Testament. Jesus has come and has fulfilled all these kinds of laws and ceremonies and observances that served only to point to his coming and work. And now that he's come and done it, they're irrelevant. To hold to them is to hold to like your training wheels when you're 30 on your bike. (laughs) How embarrassing. But in this case, much more serious. A compromise of the gospel. The purity of Christian faith, of Christian liberty is at stake with these Old Testament signs. And Paul, well, you have to understand that the controversy that the New Testament is written, the context of the New Testament is a controversy. Let's put it that way. And that controversy is this whole question. What does it mean that the old, that Jesus has come, and what does that mean for it? the Old Testament ceremonies and rituals. That's the, that's the context of much of Paul's writing and fighting. And here he is fighting. He fights in Galatians fiercely, calling people who say, um, you have to be circumcised to be a Christian. There was this party of Jews who were converted and came to believe in Jesus who could not accept the idea that this meant that the ceremonies and and all this were were irrelevant. They could not accept it. And Paul accommodates them. He gives them lots of room. He does call them weak. But he he, he does give them room to continue to go to synagogue on Saturday if they want to, to keep this or that feast if they want to, to restrict their diet in this or that way according to God's old law if they want to. But if they start oppressing the Gentiles and telling them they have to, they have to believe in Jesus and do these things, Paul is fierce in defending the purity and simplicity of the gospel from that. You with me? Here he is doing it and extending it beyond circumcision, which is what he fights over in Galatians, to food and drink laws, to the festivals, like the Passover and the Day of Atonement and the Feast of Booths, to new moon festivals, which are also a part of God's law in in Numbers, and even to the Sabbath day. So case closed. Right, I should fold my hand, right? The trump card works. I'm not allowed to put a burden of a Sabbath on your head. It's God's word. Is that quite true? I say no, because, in fact, a new day has come. And that new era, that gospel epic which we're now living in, the rule of Jesus Christ living on this side of his atoning sacrifice and his resurrection, there is a new day which has been instituted that Paul's not talking about here. He's talking about the seventh day. 
And I am not about to put that burden on you. That is a burden that the Judaizers were putting on the church. You have to go. They went to Sunday services, but they also went the preceding day to Sabbath, or to Saturday Sabbath synagogue services and to temple worship while the temple lasted. And they were advocating that this must be done. Saturday was actually, in their opinion, the real Sabbath, and they could not get on board with the new era, the new day that it brought in. How do I know that there's a new day? How do I know that this Sabbath is referring to the seventh-day Sabbath and not to this new day, our Lord's Day, today? Well, let me give you the, the rundown real quick, okay? Here's, here's the evidence that piles up in the New Testament that there is a new day called the Lord's Day and that Paul has no problem judging people on the basis of whether they're faithful to that day or not. Here's the evidence. The first day of the week has this significance. Jesus was raised from the dead on that day. It's explicit in in all four Gospels. All of them say, on the first day of the week, Jesus was resurrected. Twice Jesus appears to his gathered disciples on the first day of the week. So in the time after his resurrection, and between that and his ascension, we know of two explicit moments when he appears, when his disciples are gathered, and that is on subsequent Lord's days, or Sundays, first days of the week. And then what happens? He ascends into heaven at the very beginning of Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 2, on the first day of the week, what happens? The church is born. How is the church born? The Holy Spirit is poured out on the disciples, and they become preachers of the gospel, bold, full of God's Spirit. And many are converted and and continue in this teaching and fellowship that this power of the Spirit creates. This power is poured out, lo and behold, on the first day of the week. What else happens? Well, we see towards the end of Acts that Paul, that the Christians are meeting together on the first day of the week. And Paul is preaching to them and they're, they're celebrating their agape feast and having the Lord's Supper. That's in Acts 20. It says this, On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. Aren't you glad we get out at like 1230? You know, John, I have to tell you this, this, this joke. John Owen, who has written volumes on whatever he wrote about. He wants Joe, and he's written a lot on the Sabbath. I actually found it, Amanda, wherever you are, online. Thank you for helping me. Um, he, he made this joke about the Sabbath doctrine. He said, so for all its talk about rest, the Sabbath doctrine itself has seen very little rest. 
for how many people have, have uh, dealt with it in, in books. So we see the church, by example, gathering for worship, preaching in the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, we see that Paul gives instructions for, uh, that, that, that the Corinthians take up a special diaconal offering for the poor, and that they do this every first day of the week. And that they set it aside in a special fund for when he comes, he'll, he'll collect it, as he's been doing with all the churches, and he'll take it to Jerusalem for the relief of the poor on the first day of the week. Another explicit reference to worship or an activity of worship, as we participated in earlier, tithes and offerings. There'll be another offering for the poor at the end of our service today. We do this on the first day of the week, just like the Christians in the book of Corinthians. And then what do we see? In the, at the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, John's vision of the end of all things, he has this vision on a day that he calls the Lord's Day. And so he acknowledges that there is a day that uniquely belongs to the Lord in which God communed with him and revealed things to him and taught us all through that revelation on that day. A day of unique blessing, you could say. Just as God promised in the original institution that it was a day of blessing. And then lastly, the author of the book of Hebrews speaks of a Sabbath-keeping that remains for the people of God under the rule of Christ. Can you put this up, Hebrews? So, this passage is swimming in pronouns. It is very difficult to keep straight and to know who is being spoken of here. Let me just tell you what I think. So it says, verse 9, There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. That Sabbath rest is really one word in the original, and it's a unique word, a word that may well have been coined just for this passage. And it, it's like a, it means Sabbath-keeping or a Sabbatism. There is a Sabbath-keeping, a Sabbatism that remains for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Now, who's he? There's lots of he's and his's. Who's being talked about? In the next verse, we see that there's a clear us. And so we know that that's, that's you and me, the reader, the hearer. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest. That's the application. The ground of it is, earlier in verse 10, the one who has entered his rest, that H is capitalized in this version, that everyone is going to agree is God. God has entered his rest. The one who has entered God's rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Now, a lot of people want to look at that and say, what it's saying is, in the New Testament, we, we fulfill God's law spiritually. God's law of Sabbath keeping spiritually. There isn't a particular day set aside for us. All days are equal. That we, we enter into this perpetual spiritual state 
by faith in Christ. And we're being exhorted here simply to have faith in Christ. That's what we're being exhorted. No, no kidding. This is, this is a very common interpretation. And it has its validity. But what I think, as I've studied the passage, which is difficult, what I think is being said here, because that this relates, God, he has brought up God's original Sabbath rest, day seven creational rest. He's brought up the rest that's instituted at Mount Sinai and, the, and that both of those rests haven't panned out. And, then, and the whole point of Hebrews is to exalt Jesus Christ over the, the forms and ceremonies of the past. I think what he's saying is the one, Jesus, who has entered into his rest after com- completing the work of redemption has himself rested from all his works just as God did originally. There is a new rest that's been established by Jesus Christ for you and me. And we are to be diligent to enter that rest. Now the question is, is there a Sabbath day, an emblem of that rest, instituted for you and me? Is there a Sabbath keeping that's not just a spiritual, permanent, constant reality for us, but is there, in fact, a a period of time that God wants us to, like Adam was to, like his people Israel were to, for us to, to set aside our worldly concerns and labors, our work, and to give ourselves undistractedly to Worship of God, communion and fellowship with him. I think yes, absolutely yes. Why is it appropriate that this would be the case? What's the, why would God do this? Why would he change the day? Why would he change the day from Saturday to Sunday? Well, I've started to answer that question. There's this first creation account. It's in view in this passage of Hebrews. I encourage you all to study it and read it. It's a humdinger. Hard to wade through. And that's referenced here earlier in the passage. In Genesis 1, to, 1, 1 to 2, 3... Is the, is the account of God's first original creation. But did you know that there is another account of creation in Scripture? God completed his creation, his first creation, and entered into his rest. Man was created to share in that rest with him. His delight in the world he had made. Fellowship with God. Constant, unbroken, but man is not like God, eternal and full. He has to be sustained and filled. And God gave man, in his perfection, a day to be sustained, to be built up, to remember who he is and, what, and who God is, to fellowship with God, to commune with him. Even in man's perfection, God gave a day for that. That's the first creation account. 
There's another, though, another creation account in Scripture. What is it? Well, it begins almost immediately in chapter 3. And it carries it through the rest of the Bible. This is the account of God's work of recreation. Why does he need to recreate things? Because of me. Because of you. Because of Adam. Because of our sin. Because of our corruption of his good world. Our corruption of ourselves. Our our separation from God because of our sin. Something had to be done. Well, it didn't have to be done. (laughs) But God graciously left his rest and gave himself to a new work of making you and me to live when we deserve only death. That is the new and second creation work of God. And it is taken up in the rest of the Bible. This second creation work is profound and it is far grander than the first one. You've seen the pictures from Hubble, right? They're on every desktop these days. They're just marvelous pictures of what God has made. He's made something far more wonderful still when he makes you and me to live. It's just wonderful. Listen to this. I think I've got it here. Oh, I don't. From earlier. This is from Thomas Watson. Great was the work of creation, but greater the work of redemption. It cost more to redeem us than to make us. In the one, there was only the speaking of a word, an easy work. In the, one, in, in the other, there was the shedding of blood. The creation was the work of God's fingers. Redemption, the work of his arm. Heavy lifting. In creation, God gave us ourselves. In redemption, he gave us himself. Tremendous new work of God for our salvation. What happens in this work, this redemptive work? Jesus came down, left his rest, and took on tremendous difficulty and hardship and pain and sorrow and ultimately death for you and me. And then he got buried in the ground like a little seed and he died. And what happened? The Holy Spirit from that seed that was planted in the ground brought forth life abundant and everlasting. Jesus was raised from the grave and was vindicated by the power of the Spirit. And that same Spirit, which vindicated Jesus and raised him from the dead, is promised to all who believe 
and will cause those who are dead in trespasses and sins, who are spiritually dead and have no love for God, to become alive together with Christ. It's a supernatural, recreative work of God. This is the second account of creation. All those who have, you wouldn't know the difference looking at man who's born again and the man who's only been born once, you know? It's hard to tell the difference looking from the outside. Why? Well, because our bodies continue to decay and we go into the ground and we die. But what happens when we die? Our spirits which have been made alive, go immediately to be with the Lord in in his paradise. And we share in that sense in, in the Sabbath rest that has been promised to us, the rest of Jesus. We enter into his rest then, and our bodies go into the ground and await the day of resurrection when our spirits and our bodies, which were made to be together, are once again joined. And this This mortal puts on immortality, and we stand again upon the earth with Jesus. That's what happens in this second great work of creation, or recreation. It's this huge thing. It's just marvelous. And so it's fitting that this new work have a new day. Are we any stronger than the Israelites? Are we any more able to obey God? Are we any less susceptible to deception, to disobedience, to lies, to falling away from the living God? No. If you read the New Testament, it's full of direct statements that we're not any better and that we should learn from their bad example and not be like them. Why? Because we very well could be. God gave them a day to renew them, to strengthen them, to perpetuate their faith into the future. He's given us a day too. It's a better day though because it's a day that encapsulates the work of our Lord Jesus Christ in redemption. How would the Lord have us keep this day? This is the $64 million question, the one you've been waiting a month to hear. What's Jody going to say? How would the Lord keep, have us keep this day? Number one, the most important thing is, it cannot be kept apart from repentance and faith. There is no keeping of a Sabbath that pleases God. There never has been such a thing as a Sabbath keeping that did not come from faith and belief and love for God and dependence upon Him. If you try it, if you, if you come here and you try to keep the Sabbath by coming to church with, and it doesn't come from faith and belief and love for God and a desire to be helped by him, then what's God going to say to you? If this is just a way that you perform well and 
You know, tuck in your shirt and be a good citizen, a good Christian. What is God going to say to you? The same thing he said to his people Israel. Which I have somewhere here. Bring your worthless offerings no longer, says God. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly, says God. He'll say, who asked for that? This is not the Sabbath that I want. What is the Sabbath that God wants? First of all, it's, it's repentance and faith, belief in him, coming to him, folding your hand and saying, I got nothing, Lord, help me. Help me. Wash me clean from my sins. That's where it starts. And if it doesn't start there, it's hopeless. There's just nothing. Don't bother. And I'll just say this. Is that a hard work? Believing? Oh my, it's not a hard work. It's not a hard work. Listen to what Jesus says. This is how easy it is. Can you believe, this, this is amazing. This is what Jesus says. This is how hard faith and repentance is. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Take, and I will give you rest. Come to me. How, easy, how hard is it for your, little, your daughter to, to come to you when you do this? It's just the most natural thing in the world. That's how easy Christ has made it. Come to me. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm meek and gentle, says Jesus. I'll give you rest for your soul. That's how easy he's made this, the beginning of keeping his Sabbath. And then what does he do? What does he give us in this day, the Lord's day? What has he given us? What does he require of us on this day in particular? Well, everybody wants to talk about what you can't do. <laughs> and get all bollocked up about what you can't do. And I'm just not interested in it. Here's why I'm not interested in it. Because I know how much you can do. I know what God offers to you on this day. How rich it is. What a lavish feast he's spread before you. How ungrateful is it when God has spread a lavish feast of his own body and his blood, of his, his own wisdom and truth, the salvation that's brought to, about by the Spirit working through the message preached in your life, how ungrateful is it for us to get caught up in objections because of all that's difficult? I'm just not interested. I won't go there. What I, where I will go is to, is to remind us that this day is a blessing. This day is a tremendous joy. The Lord's Day is, has, in the past, by all those stingy, Stern Puritans. You know what they called it? 
the queen of days. The best of days. Why is it the best of days? Because on this day, God has helped us by telling us, set aside your work, come to me, and I'll give you rest. This day is an emblem for us of the rest that Jesus has won and now offers to us. He offers it to us on Monday and on Tuesday and on Wednesday and on Thursday and Friday and Saturday too. But here's where we especially get fed. Here's where we especially are strengthened for the work of staying in that rest, of being constant in it, in our love for Christ. This is the queen of days. God has been gracious to give us this day, gracious to command us to say no to things so that we can have his feast. We can share in it. It's a gracious thing of God. So we should set aside all that's unnecessary so that we can get the good stuff, so that we can come to the table and eat. What's unnecessary? This is the difficult part. You know, central to the Sabbath throughout Scripture, certainly in the Old Testament, is this idea that it's a day that we should also let those who are servants under us have off. And here's the reality. Many of us are servants who don't get the day off. Our economy is completely given over to godlessness in this area. And this is the reality of our lives. We are deeply embedded in a culture that, that will not observe the Sabbath, the Lord's Day. And there's no extricating yourself from it. It's just impossible. Don't even try to be a purist about this. The lights are on. Have you considered that the lights are on? Somebody's working. Some many people are working so that we can have the lights on. You gonna go, are we going to turn the lights off? Are we going to go home today and not turn on the electric oven? Where, is it, where does it begin? Where does it end? We can't untangle ourselves. Many of us, first of all, our servants, who in order to make a living, have to work on this day. And I think of this a lot like the Apostle Paul treats servanthood in, in the New Testament. Servants, be content with your station in life. Learn to be content. Work hard for your masters. Be a good worker. Don't be a complainer. But, you know, if, if you can get free, rather do that. And I think of, with this, we, many of us are slaves to a 24-7 economy that cannot get enough of buying things and using things and surfing on things. Many of us have to work. You know that the early church dealt with this reality too? And our society is now very much like theirs. And the way they dealt with it was that they met before dawn so that servants... Slaves could come and participate with them in worship and then before they started their duties for their masters. 
Nobody wants to go there. So, listen, be charitable to one another in this. That's the first application. Some people just have to work. And they cannot be here as often as they would want to be. Or as you would want them to be. And we have to learn and practice charity with our brothers and sisters in this. Some of them don't have the advantages that you have in the profession and calling God gave you. Number one. Number two... Choose carefully who you are and are not going to employ on this day. It's impossible not to employ somebody. The lights are on. But do you have to employ all the people you do employ? What about the Walmart workers? Would it be good for America if we brought back the Sunday closing laws, the blue laws? absolutely it would be good for America. Does anybody doubt that things are bad in America, civilly? That there's murder and strife and unease and unrest? That the government's buying up stockpiles of bullets for you-know-what? Things are not good. Do you know I've been reading this week from history about um, Statements from criminals, convicted criminals, and from their jailers and their magistrates from the 1700s, and relentlessly, you know, where they, you know, like today, where would somebody say, well, I started my descent into crime, a life of crime from this point. You know what they said consistently back in those days? Sabbath breaking was where it all went wrong. It would be so good for America if we could be blessed again with a day off where there was really nothing fun to do but come and hear from God. I'm telling you, it would be good for America. But folks, it ain't going to be anytime soon. So back to the question, who are you going to employ on this day? You've got to choose. You will be employing people. So is it hopeless? Just give it up? Just shop at Walmart? Go out to eat like everybody? Because they're going to serve people anyway. This is an all or nothing proposition. Is that it? Well, here's what I think. Here's what I think we should do. This is one of those issues, as Max says, you've got to hold hands with your conscience sort of squeeze your conscience's hand once in a while and say, how are we doing over there? How we feel about this? Or how do we feel about that? How are we doing? Because there's no way of cleanly extricating yourself. But you do need to have a conscience about it. And here's what I think. Why don't you, as an individual or as a family, just choose one or two places that you're going to stand in protest and, or not contribute to, to the lawlessness concerning the Sabbath. Just one or two places, and you make a commitment. I'm not going to judge my brothers and sisters if they don't stand where I stand. And, I, and I'm not going to make, you know, I'm not going to make a big parade about it. I'm just going to hold hands with my conscience here and here and say, you know, are you going to employ the Walmart worker? Are you going to employ the restaurant server? What about, <laughs> here's the big one, 
What about the, 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 the servants who you employ and I employ that earn $10 million more dollars than you do and I do? Football. What, what else do they do in there than working for you? They're working for you. Are you going to employ them? Now, remember, we're not going to become monsters about this. I just want to press you <laughs> to think about it. Think hard about it. Pray about these things. Follow the, the Lord's leading in your life. Make a decision. Protest. And in this way, maybe we can be working towards Sabbath justice again in our, in our country. I know maybe you're laughing inside and saying, oh, Jody, it's hopeless. Maybe it is. But there's a lot of things that are hopeless and that we're fighting to bring back, right? Manhood and womanhood is hopeless. It's not hopeless. You're a potent man and a potent woman in this world. You're salt and light. Where are you going to be salty and where are you going to be lighty? with the Sabbath. Let me end just with this quote again from Isaiah chapter 58, the prophet Isaiah, prophesying of the time of the Lord Jesus of our day. If because of the Sabbath or because of the Lord's day, if because of the Lord's day you turn your foot from doing your own pleasure on my holy day, and you call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable, and you honor it, desisting from your own ways, from seeking your own pleasure. If you'll do this, oh, and from speaking your own word, if you'll do these things, then you will take delight in the Lord, and I, the Lord, will make you ride on the heights of the earth, and I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Amen.